I will be quiet while you guys start this show of yours. Okay. Delusions run strong on this podcast. Rish Outfield has them. I have them. Our guests have them. If you listen long enough, you will have delusions too. The Journey Into Podcast is proud to present this journey into a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. A journey into Star Wars, featuring numerous delusions of grandeur. Welcome to a new episode of the Delusions of Grandeur here on the Journey Into Podcast where we talk about Star Wars. Um, Often we talk about movies, sometimes we talk about television shows or things that are upcoming or comic books. Uh, Today we're actually talking about something that we've never talked about, another podcast, another Star Wars themed podcast. But this is something different. This isn't just a podcast of people talking about Star Wars. It's actually a biopod is what the creators call it where it's a, it's a bio of uh, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas around the time that they made Jaws and Star Wars. And it's, it's kind of about not so much a making of those movies, but what they were going through and kind of the trials that they had. I didn't want to tackle this one alone, so uh, of course I uh, wanted Rish Outfield to listen to it as well, which he was able to do. Hi, Rish. Oh, hey. How's it going? <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. Yes, I'm here. Uh, happy to talk about Star Wars again. The surprising thing is that we're not flooded with other news, other Star Wars news right now. I thought once Star Wars Celebration happened and we got the title and, you know, these are the people that are in it, every month we'd have 20 new things to talk about. And we don't. So luckily you discovered this podcast, and yeah, now we've got plenty to talk about. Yeah, I I can't remember what I was reading, or maybe it was another podcast I was listening to, and I ran across this, and I just thought, oh, that sounds kind of hokey or or whatever, just, you know, I had never listened to something like that. But the more they talked about it, I thought, eh, that sounds kind of interesting. So I started listening to it, and uh, was pulled in right away. But I think it's such a good podcast, it's such a good production, that we had to have more than just the two of us talking about it. So we invited Big Anklevich to join us here on the on Delusions of Grandeur today. Hi! How's it going, Big? <laughs> I was waiting for you to say, how's it going or something. I was just about... <laughs> uh, how's it going? It's going good. All right. I don't know. It seems like it's been a while since you've been on this podcast, but... It does feel like it's been a little bit. How how has things been treating you? Oh, pretty good. Like Rich said... Not getting enough Star Wars news. Not, yeah, not enough. You know, I was almost ready to pull out those Ewok movies again, but... Oh, yeah. you got to invite me for those. Uh, my favorite character is, is the giant Gorak. Ah, is that something of Star Wars that I know about that you don't? Come on, Marshall, admit it. It is. It yes! is. I have not watched those. I win. 
I finally win! All I know is that Wilford Brimley is in the, the second movie. That's all I know. Yeah, I, I don't... I don't really... Rem- I didn't see the... I, I See, we recorded the Ewok Adventure off TV when it aired the very first time. And I saw that uh, many times after that. I believe Wilford Brimley in the uh, Battle for Planet Endor was like Mason Sindel's grandpa or something like that. I don't, I don't really know. Ooh, that's what we need to petition Hasbro. I, they did a thing, a uh, contest this year, where they let people vote for the figure from Empire Strikes Back that they wanted the most. And who was it that won, Rish? Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker? Oh. Yeah. That's what every figure that they make is... is one, oh. Anyways, so <laughs> they gave you options like Lobot and uh, Ugnaughts and etc. A bunch of stuff like that because, you know, it's the 30th anniversary of Empire Strikes Back. Well, coming up soon, I, I wonder if there's some way that we could get a mace and a sindel figure (laughs) (laughs) that would be so i mean they've done comic book figures they've got dr afra and they've done like ones from cartoons i don't know ones that are more obscure than mace and sindel come on (laughs) yeah i don't know what the official lucasfilm uh, stance is on the ewok movies whether they're trying to throw them under the rug or if they're embracing those as canon or not yeah i doubt that they're canon they're probably embracing them as canon as much as they are this christmas special (laughs) but uh i don't care i think that they uh also uh were trying to get rid of general thrawn but then they brought him back and made him uh canon so yeah some of that stuff comes back people's minds can be changed it's like when dc got rid of everything and uh, condensed their universe back down to one. And then they let Jeff Loeb in, and he brought, you know, Crypto the Super Dog and <laughs> Zippy the Super Horse and Chugnot the uh, Super Cat. I don't know what their names are. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think Chugnot was the Super Centipede. Oh. Very obscure character. <laughs> uh, <if> he, <laughs> I think he came from the Bizarro universe, and Superman liked him so much he just stayed in ours. He was the superhuman centipede. <laughs> hey, that ain't funny, man. Yeah, the, the Thrawn thing, I think, just goes to show that if a character has enough following, is if a character is respected enough or loved enough, or uh, maybe, what's the author's name? Timothy Zahn was just really pushy about bringing Thrawn back, that that, that can happen. I wonder if people fought hard enough if we could get Mara Jade reinstated, resurrected. Yeah, I don't know how they... I mean, I, I think they could bring her in as a character, but I don't know if they could give her the same uh, backstory. Well, maybe the same backstory, but she definitely wouldn't be uh, romancing with Luke unless they uh, came up with a missing years kind of a scenario there. Well, it's, you and I had a conversation one time, and I think it was on this show, but maybe it was just when we were talking. And I said, how do we know that some of those kids that Ben Solo murdered weren't Luke's own kids? Yeah, I think we did talk about that. We know nothing, really. We get that little flashback in Force Awakens. Right, Jon Snow. And then you get 30 
seconds more of that flashback in uh, Last Jedi, yeah, they, they've never really explained what happened or when that was or how many were killed or who the Knights of Ren are. And was it just Luke and a bunch of kids on a planet somewhere? Or were there other instructors? Did Luke have older apprentices that were now full-fledged Jedi? And were they all killed? All good questions. <laughs> don't expect answers. No, that's a good point. <laughs> or don't expect everybody to like the answers. There's, there's... Yeah, there's that too. But anyway, sorry, to go back to what Big brought up, I, I'm not sure anybody likes Mason Sindel. Anybody. <laughs> everybody loved Sindel. She was so cute. But nobody liked Mace. <laughs> That's funny. But don't they explain in uh, Battle for Endor that Mace was, like, murdered? Yeah, all that's left is Sindel. Like, they in the end of... Or do uh, they actually kill Mace in Battle for Endor? Because if they did, that would impress me a little bit. Yeah, I'm not sure if we see them get killed, but, yeah, Mace and the parents, who we went through a whole movie to rescue, get wiped out at the start of the, uh, the second movie. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, the Ewoks themselves have to be a hundred times more popular than Mason Sindel, and they're just completely ignored in toys and figures and stuffed animals and statues and all that stuff. So somebody somewhere has to have a grudge against the Ewoks, and I think by extension, that grudge would extend to the Ewok adventure and Battle for Endor. Yeah, no way we're going to get somebody uh, to stick up for Battle for Endor. The most underrated That's... species in the galaxy, right? That's right, they took down the frickin' Empire. And see your Wookiees take down any Empire. <laughs> That's what we need to have a contest. Uh, Ewoks versus Gungans. Yeah, I didn't see your Gungans do anything useful. They're Twi'leks. So why don't you just step off? Yeah, I like Twi'leks. <laughs> You just like Twi'leks because they're sexy. They're the only species that you can use in your story where you needed a sexy alien. Yeah, that still <laughs> hasn't uh, aired. We were supposed to run it uh, recently, and I was too lazy. All right. What... Well, <laughs> I was going to say we were here to talk about something else, though, right? I totally derailed your conversation. I'm sorry. I, I brought us into freaking Mason Sindel land. Well, I, I brought up the Ewoks, so that was my fault. <laughs> But yeah, we're actually going back to the original, back to b before there was a Star Wars um, with this blockbuster podcast. Yeah, I was just kind of blown away as I listened to it. Some of the information I knew, you know, some of the details of the behind the scenes of, I probably knew a little bit more about Star Wars than Jaws, but I've heard a lot of, I've watched a lot of stuff about Jaws as well. But there was a lot that I learned through through listening to this, and I I thought I knew the stories pretty well, and that was one of the first questions I asked you, Rish, was did any of this surprise you? Any of the information that they had in here? Well, no, uh, most of it was familiar to me or anecdotal in the books that I've read about the making of Star Wars, and I I too have read I read like Carl Gottlieb's The Jaws Log, which everybody who likes Jaws should read. Uh, Gottlieb, he was the screenwriter of Jaws, and Spielberg wanted to have the writer on set while he was making it, and Universal is just like, are you crazy? We don't do that. 
And so he cast Gottlieb as a character in the film hmm. and said, now he has to be on set all the time. So anytime he needed new lines or anytime there was some issue, he was just right there. <laughs> Luckily. And because of that, Gottlieb you know, wrote down every day what was going on on the film and they were able to make that into a book about the making of Jaws that came out, you know, around the time Jaws came out. And uh, I, I actually got to talk to Gottlieb and have him sign my uh, copy of Jaws, which was promptly stolen. And then he passed away right after that. I was like, oh. Huh. But yeah, that's, he was, you know, an old man, but super happy to talk about Jaws all those years later. Yeah, one of those things that you know that you'll be remembered after you're gone because something that you had a hand in has such a legacy to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One of the things I was surprised at, I mean, I always knew that uh, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were friends and, you know, they kind of helped each other out. And I knew that uh, George Lucas was kind of, I don't know if he was a mentor or more of a friend. had that with uh, Francis Ford Coppola. You know, I knew of that connection. But I didn't realize that the pack included like Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma and uh, any of the others that, that were kind of in that group and that they were all kind of, you know, watch each other's movies and talk to each other about it. And the scene opens with uh, them all gathered together watching Spielberg's duel, which was kind of cool because you and I talked about that movie as well. <laughs> Thanks, Marty. The glow of a projector bounces off a screen to light up Coppola's sprawling living room and everyone in it. Francis, Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, and some other friends. Everyone's eyes were drawn to the images on the screen in front of them. It's an action-packed car chase film called Duel, soon to be an ABC television movie of the week. And it's directed by the youngest person in the room, 24-year-old Steven Spielberg. But I don't know, was there anything like that big that, that you were surprised by as you went through this podcast? Oh, there was so much that I was surprised by. I am not a historian of the movies that I like, like Rish is. You know, I know some things, but I, I don't know the whole story behind everything that's made. You know, most of what I do know, I heard from the mouth of Rish, who is telling me, oh yeah, I read this in this book. And this was in this book, and oh, it was so cool to find out this. Yeah, there's some some things that, you know, I, I went, went contrary to what I had heard in the past, too. So it was really interesting. We haven't really said uh, to anybody out there listening to the show exactly what we're talking about, have we? This podcast is called Blockbuster, right? Yeah, it's uh, Blockbuster, and the person that put it together, the showrunner or the creator of it, and he narrates it as well as as Matt Schrader. He put this together. I mean, he, I guess he was a journalist, um, had covered movies and, and done some documentaries before. But he wanted to create something new and different. You know, I guess he had heard a lot of podcasts and, and stuff like that. So this is, in a way, a documentary about these movies and these directors. But they go... Further than that, where they act out the voices in the scenes, you know, it's, it's like a full cast version of a documentary. It's like a biopic version. Right. Yeah, it's, it's almost a biopic movie. 
And it's a talkie. <laughs> right. The, the, it's not a documentary because it's dramatized. You know, it's not just got a narrator saying that they met at this place and this is what happened. They've got actors pretending to be a Spielberg and Lucas and Scorsese and, and Coppola and Brian De Palma and Harrison Ford. And they, they say things as though we are observing these events happening. And, and that to me was way, way unique as far as a podcast goes, because somebody had to write all this and try and grab information from various sources and present it as though we are seeing it or sorry, hearing it happen. And so uh, Schrader really, I mean, he, he had to choose not only what he was going to include in his narrative, but how he was going to present it to us. In the same way that sometimes you'll watch a biopic and there will be characters in there that they needed to tell the story that didn't actually exist or that are combinations of other characters or they change around the, the chronology of how things actually happened when and where just to be able to tell a story that doesn't take five hours or in this, this case, I guess it did. Right. Um, and, and to me, that was unlike any podcast I'd ever heard. I, I've heard a couple of those, you know, mystery podcasts, true crime podcasts. True crime. Yeah. Right. But they don't usually do reenactments in the same way that watching a true crime television series that they, they oh, they live for the reenactments. And so, yeah, whoever's idea it was to come up with a we're going to write a script like it's a movie instead of just having a narrator say, you know, that the movie came out in this day and this was the reaction. Anyhow, it captivated me in a way that a normal audio documentary wouldn't have because it gave emotion and personality to these moments that the only way that you could present that would be doing a biopic, doing a miniseries on the making of Jaws or making of Close Encounters or making of Star Wars. But it had the advantage of, because it was audio, it wasn't some actor playing Steven Spielberg. It was Steven Spielberg. We were hearing Steven Spielberg talk to Lucas and talk to the studio. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. In, this, in mm-hmm. the same way that they used to say that radio was the theater of the mind that people would listen to radio shows and, and imagine they would visualize things. It required an extra step to do that. Whereas just watching a movie, you're seeing things presented to you without room for interpretation. With this, I was able to forget that, you know, some of these people are long gone or that Steven Spielberg isn't in his twenties anymore. Um, and that to me was a real accomplishment. Yeah. And, you know, and they had somebody in charge of sound design and editing and they had original music orchestrated for the production. And they, I mean, it just, they went all out and, you know, almost making a movie, but uh, doing it all with audio. And like you said, they had different actors for the different people, you know, Lucas, John Williams is featured a lot in this as well. And they did a great job with all of that and really brought it to life in ways that I was, I was emotional as I was listening to it. 
just the crap that these guys had to go through and the, the passion that they had to, to get through it. I thought it was very moving. Yeah, I, I'm not ashamed to say that I bawled through most of it. And it was usually the music parts for some reason. You know what I mean? Well, okay, you asked if there was something that I didn't know. I didn't know that John Williams' wife had just passed away when he got the call from Spielberg. And so them presenting that, present, they introduced John Williams with that, that his wife had just died and he was in between projects and melancholy and not sure what to do with his life. And then the phone rings. And so immediately, like, I mean, I already love John Williams, but immediately it was just like, oh my gosh, I didn't know this about you. I'm so sorry, kind of thing. And then he gets this project from this energetic young kid and it gives him something to focus on. Do you know what I mean? Instead of being alone, instead of dwelling on what he has lost, suddenly he has to scramble to work on this project. And he focuses on the music and we kind of go with him. And, and oh my gosh, I just, I cried, man. And another thing that's really interesting about this podcast is that they, they use the actual music from Jaws, the music from Star Wars, from Close Encounters, and they present it to us as Williams trying to figure out the music, presenting it to his two directors. What do you think of this? This is my idea of when the shark is coming. Whether we see the shark or not, this music can tell the audience, oh, oh, the shark is near. Whoa, my gosh, I, Big and I always talk about the power of music, the power of themes, re repetition, of familiarity, of hearing, for example, Williams's Superman theme. Suddenly I'm a little boy again in an instant when I hear that song. So doing that multiple times through episodes, whether it's the main theme of Star Wars or whether it is Jaws or whether it is the famous notes that the aliens come up with for Close Encounters, it was a, a shorthand, an emotional shorthand that just, yeah, it got me every time. Yeah, the music parts were the stuff that uh, blew me away the most too. Rish told me that if I didn't cry, uh, at least in every episode, then I wasn't a human being, <laughs> I think. And so I expect it to be bawling. And ah, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't bawling, but I, I definitely got misty eyed every time. There was the part where Lucas comes, you know, he's in the middle of, you know, all sorts of crap going on. And then he shows up at John Williams' house and John Williams sits down with him at the piano and is trying to show him what he's come up with. You know, he's like, oh, I was thinking about this here. And oh yeah, and I was thinking this. John and George walk over to the piano. So right as the first frame comes in. John, it's, it's beautiful. Oh, <laughs> you had me concerned. And the thing that I uh, was saying before, where I was saying there was a lot of stuff 
that I thought was the deal with Star Wars. And then now after listening to this, I'm thinking, oh, maybe it wasn't that way. Like I'd heard back in the day that uh, when Lucas was cutting the movie together, he'd put in, you know, Ride of the Valkyries and a bunch of various temp tracks, classical pieces as temp tracks. And after hearing it with it so much that he was just like, oh, I, you know, he heard John Williams' music. And he's like, eh, I really like Ride of the Valkyries for this part. Maybe we should just keep that. But the way they portrayed it in this thing, anyways, that was not the case. He heard the stuff and was really excited and taken aback by how great it sounded. And yeah, the part where he introduces him to it and, you know, Lucas's reaction to it. Uh, yeah, it really gave him a jolt of energy that he needed for it. Yeah, it was really emotional. And then, oh my gosh, the best part is when they're in the studio about to record the soundtrack. And, you know, when they, they actually use the, the recording of the actual soundtrack for the podcast. You know, like, and it starts and, and you hear the lady go, oh my God, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. And all the people's reaction to it. And yeah, that was something that really made me uh, messed up a little bit. Because John Williams' music is one of the things that's brought me a great deal of joy in my life. He's scored so many of the things that I love so much. And a lot of the reason that I love them so much is because of the music that goes with them. And... This whole podcast feels like the foundational myth of our generation. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's going back and telling the story. You know, you have like the, the nativity or something in Christianity. And I don't know a whole lot of other religions to, uh, <laughs> to be able to say what their foundational myths are. But, you know, you have, I don't know, however, the, the Greek... God's created the earth, you know, Gaia, I think, gives birth to the Titans, etc. You know, that, that kind of stuff. But for our generation, for the Generation X, it seems like everything starts with Star Wars. You know what I mean? It's like, that's what created that culture that we're all so into. We all fuss over and, and dwell on so much. And so listening to this podcast, it's almost like, watching a Christmas story, <laughs> but just for our particular culture. And yeah, the, I guess those are the hymns. Yeah, there you go. For us, the Star Wars and, and E.T. and Jaws and Indiana Jones and all those theme songs, Superman, all the theme songs that uh, John Williams provided for us. And yeah, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's really neat. Because like Rish was saying, it almost feels like you are actually there, you know? It's like you're a fly on the wall. You're listening to the recordings that Nixon had rolling <laughs> in the freaking White House all the time. Except for in this case, it was George Lucas and Steven Spielberg that were obsessively taping everything that went on. And it was an interesting experience. It's it's not too long, the podcast. I think, how many episodes? Was there five or six? Six episodes, all about a half hour long. 
Yeah, they're not particularly long. I thought they were longer, but each episode also has behind the scenes or something like that afterwards. I didn't actually, once they said, okay, coming up next time, then I would just skip to the next one. <laughs> and it was only until like three or four episodes in that I looked at it and actually saw that, you know, the player thing on the timeline was not really that close to the end. And I thought, oh, what's going on? And so I kind of skipped a little ahead and I heard them like, I don't know, doing basically like the special features on the DVD kind of a thing, you know, showing up after each episode. Yeah. So if you want the the short version of it, you can just listen until they give you the coming up next week <laughs> and skip. Or if you're, you know, really into it, then you can keep on listening. Or you could listen to it and find out just how much you love it and then go back and listen to it again and listen to all the extras stuff too. Wow. Yeah, that that's essentially what I did. I I did the same thing as you as I was listening to it. I just skipped to the next one and didn't listen to the afterward stuff. But since then I've gone back and listened to the after show things cuz it's pretty interesting to to hear what they were trying to do. But yeah, going back to, you know, bringing this to life and being a fly on the wall. I thought it was so interesting, you know, when I think of George Lucas, since the prequels and all that kind of stuff, you know, and watching all of those making of, you know, the George Lucas in my head is the guy walking in a room with a stamp, you know, and saying, oh, let's see, I like that ship and I like that alien. This qualifies. You're worthy for this. And, and just, you know, being the, the cock on the, of the walk kind of thing. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a George Lucas that's the underdog. Yeah. That's being crushed by the machine. But see, that's part of the the beauty of this podcast and the way that it was presented to us is, I, you know, I never thought of Lucas as the multi-billionaire or Steven Spielberg as the multi-billionaire. They were young men with everything on the line. Uh, and nobody would would listen to them. No one would, especially with Lucas, nobody would believe in his vision of, the, you know, of this movie that he had in his head, this story that he wanted to tell, this audience that he knew was out there hungry for it. I could not have guessed that I could see Lucas as an underdog, as this poor guy that nobody is on his side. There's the point where Marcia Lucas, his wife, discovers that he has taken their life savings and invested it into the special effects for Star Wars. And she's just like, George, this was our everything that we had. And uh, I had never heard that. That's another one of those details where it's like, really? Oh, geez. Um, and that's the sort of thing that makes you really, really get on the side of somebody, you know, when it's not just, you know, my career's at stake or I'm a rising star and uh, this could ruin everything. And it's not just money, but yet, but stuff like that, where it's just like, he's willing to put it all on the line. Plus his health, he puts his health on the line. Definitely. And uh, I don't know, they, they chose to focus on all the stuff that made us root for him and love him and all the people all the obstacles that are in his way are villains essentially and i wonder if that's because we know that it's star wars that it's our childhoods that it's 
all these episodes of podcasts that we have done and the thousands of conversations that we have had over the years. And these are people that don't want that to happen. <laughs> these are people that have gotten in a time machine and are going back and, and, and saying, no, 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 we're not going to do that. It's like, this has gone over budget. You're not getting another dime. You know, there's just like this one tiny scene that epitomizes the falling out that Lucas and John Dykstra had. Lucas had hired Dykstra to run Industrial Light and Magic and do all of the special effects. And he goes there to Van Nuys and asks Dykstra, okay, you know, we're done shooting and it's nearly killed me. Please show me the silver lining. Please show me what you've got. And they've got nothing. They've, they've shot nothing. Or they have, they have three special effects. That's right. They had three shots done of the... Do you remember the number? It was like 250. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, huge. Shots that they were in the script or the storyboards. And, you know, the behind the scenes of that is that Dykstra had used all of that money to create the Dykstra Flex camera, which is the motion control camera that you could program it and it would do multiple passes shooting again and again exactly the same way so that you could take a TIE fighter model and shoot it 27 times and suddenly you've got 27 TIE fighters in the same shot. But Lucas felt like that's not what he had hired him for and they had this falling out. And I don't think that the podcast goes into detail on this, but Dykstra was fired and he was no longer a participant in the movie at that point when Lucas came in after the shooting in London. Um, Dykstra still got to stand up and accept the Oscar for Best Special Effects oh. and uh, a special Oscar for the Dykstra Flex camera at the Academy Awards the next year. But yeah, they had this falling out and they never worked again together. But it's just like that is epitomized in a two-minute scene, yeah. right? In the same way that if you're making a movie, you just focus on these moments that are the most dramatic, that get the point across. And, and another one that's just like that is Alec Guinness. I think he just appears in the one scene in the podcast, and it's him upset that, he, that the Obi-Wan character is being killed off. Um, and, and you and I talked right after I heard that episode, Marshall, and it sort of set in stone all of these ideas that I had had about Guinness post Star Wars and all the interviews that he gave where he's just like, I don't want to be remembered for Star Wars. That was just a film that I did. And, you know, all these people that ask me about it, you know, it was just a kid's movie that I made. You know, he always distanced himself from it. He 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 always seemed ashamed of Star Wars, right? Yeah, unless he was talking about the 2% that, <laughs> that he was getting out of the grosses. But yeah, he was so upset in this scene that, he, you know, he just wanted to walk away. He wanted out. And it, it's, it sucks because, you know, he's Sir Alec Guinness. Uh, he's Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know. We love him because of that. But in that moment, he's another obstacle. He's another villain Yeah. in the story. And, and Big, what did you tell me when I called you and I was just gushing about this? He didn't want to be remembered for his dumb kid movie 
that everybody seemed to think was so great. But yeah, he wouldn't be remembered at all if it weren't for that. <laughs> not, certainly not from our generation or the generation after or the generation after. I mean, he'll be remembered forever because of Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. He's part of our foundational myth now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just the idea that a seven-year-old or a child yet to be born will one day be able to do an Alec Guinness impression and say, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Well, that's a name I've not... You know, that is amazing because he's gone. He's been gone for 20 years. And so it just I, I, I'm not saying that I see Guinness as a villain in real life, but it's just it's from the perspective of 2019... I want to go to Alec Guinness in 1976 and put my arm around him and say, you're wrong to feel this way. People who aren't alive today will love you because of what you're doing right now. I don't know. It's, it's, I became emotionally attached as you guys said a, a fly on the wall. I felt like it was actually there. I, this was a time machine taking me back to the making of, you know, my favorite movies of all time yeah definitely and you you said it was about three hours right the whole thing the whole podcast itself i think so yeah and i feel like it could have been so much longer big and i had this conversation afterward about well in fact tell me what tell go ahead and tell marshall what you told me about where it ends well yeah i just thought it was weird that it ended the way it did because it wasn't just about Star Wars, you know what I mean? If it was just about Star Wars, then it gets to the gigantic success that Star Wars had. And yeah, it should end right there. But they did so much intro stuff. And not only that, but it wasn't just the story of Lucas. It was the story of Spielberg and Lucas. And what was it? Four or five? I don't know when E.T. came out, but five years later or so, Spielberg goes and breaks the record that uh, Star Wars set. And maybe a better ending for it is that they go through that and then they eventually come together and are able to work together doing the Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, I've always wanted to do a James Bond picture, if they'd let me. Well, you don't think they'd let you? Well, we'll see after Close Encounters. <laughs> Harrison would make a good Bond, don't you think? I mean, if he was British. He'd insist on keeping the sports car. <laughs> and maybe the girl. Hey, you know, I think I have a story better than James Bond. Really? I call it Indiana Smith. <laughs> the name could use some work. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, seriously, I think they ought to do another one of these and another one of these and just keep telling the story because there's a lot to come. There's a lot of stuff. They only told the very beginning uh, I'm sure there's tons that they could tell us about Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, and there's tons they could tell us about Indiana Jones and E.T. and Howard the Duck, <laughs> you know. See, it's funny you mention Howard the Duck, because in between Star Wars and Empire, George Lucas made more American graffiti. And in between Close Encounters and Raiders, Spielberg made 1941. And both of these are black marks, you know, on their career. Not quite as badly as, as Howard the Duck did. But 1941 was a 
disaster. It was one of those career-ending flops where uh, they were set to make Raiders of the Lost Ark. And the studio suddenly was just like, no, I, I don't know that we want to make a movie for this Spielberg kid. And Lucas had to fight to get Raiders made. Eventually, Paramount gave Lucas creative control and he was in charge rather than Spielberg, which is so unlike the way movies tend to be made where the director is king, or at least nowadays. And, you know, Lucas owns all those characters and all the rights and all that stuff. That is dramatic. I, I would love to see a second season where we talk about, you know, the low points. Both of them got divorced from their wives in this same stretch of time. That's drama, too. That's really interesting. Uh, and uh, I think Big is right. If they chose to do a second season of Blockbuster, there's tons and tons of ground to cover. And, and, and does it change you? when you're this hungry George Lucas and suddenly the money starts pouring in because they never even talked about that Lucas made nothing off of Star Wars. That was 20th Century Fox. You know, he poured in his own money, but he had the merchandising rights all to himself because Fox didn't want it. And when Lucas said he did want it, they said, oh, yeah, you can have that. We're not going to pay you anything. And he's like, no, no, I just, I, you know, I want to, what was it that he always said he wanted? A cookie jar that looked like Chewbacca, something like that, or an R2-D2 cookie jar. <laughs> he wanted something like that. And they're like, oh, okay. You know, it takes so long for products to get made for movies that the movie will be forgotten by the time you get your cookie jar made. Uh, so sure, you can have all that. And, and that's what made Lucas a, an institution, a multimillionaire was t-shirts and posters and action figures and model kits and, you know, just soundtracks and, and all of that stuff. Does that change you when suddenly the checks are just pouring in and every time you call somebody, they take your call? He switched his uh, point with Spielberg. So Spielberg was the one that uh, was rolling in it from <laughs> Star Wars because he gave his money away. But yeah... Uh, that that is something that could be interesting to explore. Yeah, they definitely could could go on with it. You know, I know they uh, they spent a lot of time doing their research, and they actually ran it through legal. You know, because they they say this is a true story. They're not taking too many liberties. And the, Matt Schrader compared it to something like Saving Private Ryan. You know, takes a somewhat historical story and does its own thing with it versus something like Band of Brothers, which is based on actual accounts of what happened during World War II. They really focused on getting it right and, and using real documented examples of what people had said and what people had done. You know, they can say that outside of it, but I think that really shines through as you're listening to this. Because, yeah, there were so many things that stuck out to me. Like going back to that scene where, Rish, you were talking about when he's talking about the lack of special effects that have been done. <laughs> uh, that was like a gut punch, you know, talk about being emotional while listening to it. I just I just felt that in my stomach, you know, it's like he's gone through all this effort. He finally finished the movie, or at least the principal photography for it. Then all these special effects that need to be done, they're not even close. 
the money's running out and all and that my stomach just sank you know i felt like man this guy just can't catch a break you know it's just amazing that these things happen the way they did the part that did that for me is and and i had heard it a dozen times that nobody believed in star wars when when they first screened it oh yeah nobody reacted even alan ladd who was the, the, the studio head who had bankrolled this were just like, oh, huh. Most scenes required explanation to make sense. They're coming in. Three marks at 210. Marsha was relieved the trench run scene got a cheer from Steven. But when they got to the film's final scene, the throne room, there was total silence. No music, no sound. A strange, boring ending for an adventure movie. When the end credits rolled, no one applauded or spoke. The silence sank George deep into his chair. It was clearer now than ever. Star Wars was terrible. And Spielberg's the only person that said, this is going to make a zillion dollars. This is great. But the way that they present it in the move, in sorry, in the podcast, is that John Melius says, George, this is shit. Yeah. I mean, he says it like that, and you're just, that felt like a slap to the face. And Marsha's crying in the background. Uh, talk about these people being obstacles, these people being villains. To have somebody be that blunt and that, I mean, you know, it was vulgar. He didn't sugarcoat it in the way that any human being would. When you know that this guy has broken his back over this project, you say, hi, you know, I, 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 see, some, I see what you're trying to do. There's some things that need work or whatever. But to just be like, this is worthless Oh, and then he goes down like a list of things that he needs to throw out. And one of them is this force nonsense. Yeah. That, dude, that made me, you know, that, that made me dislike Milius. I, holy smoke, poor George Lucas. And again, I haven't felt like George Lucas is someone to be pitied or someone to be sympathized with in more than 20 years. So another real, uh, accomplishment of this format and of the way that they chose to do it. Um, but and yeah, when you say that it's a true story, then somebody somewhere has to have said, this is what John Melius said in front of everybody. Yeah. But I don't see how you can still be friends with somebody like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was interesting that Brian De Palma said, Hey, well, let me help. Let me, maybe I can punch up this opening credit scene where you have this, these words going through. We need to, tighten that up a little bit. And so he kind of pitched in and did the, the stuff like that. I didn't know either. And the, what the one thing that I was surprised I didn't talk about more was because I'd always heard that Marsha saved a lot of the movie in her editing because she, she was the editor on it, right? Well, they had three different editors going at the same time because it was just such a monumental project. Once the special effects started coming in, and yeah, that first, they always talk about that first disastrous screening. And so maybe that's when Fox assigned the two other editors. Yeah. Uh, Walter Murch was one of them. If I really, really concentrate, I, I might be able to name the third. But yeah, you, I have heard that, that Lucas shot it in a certain way that was not very dynamic. But once you edited it, once you chose how long the shots would be 
and the angles and all that stuff. It started to come to life. It started to get a momentum to it. But yeah, one thing that they always say is once Williams's music came in, yeah, things that weren't working before suddenly started to work. And Big, you had asked about hearing that Lucas had scored the movie with classical music, like Holtz's uh, The Planets, and, and like you said, uh, Wagner, and he had edited the film to the music and wanted Williams to, uh, yeah, there were times when he just, he, he was like, no, I like it this way. And so at this panel, they showed, sorry, they played certain tracks from classical music and then played Williams's music from Star Wars. And they were almost identical, like two or three notes different here and there. I, I think Marshall and I talked about this one time because that same presentation is on YouTube. The guy had made, you know, a YouTube version of it where you can watch and, and he'll play the influence and then what Williams did. And I think that came from Lucas being married to the temp track and saying, no, I, I love this. Can you make it sound like this? But, you know, there are various themes like the, the, the force theme, the Leia theme and the main title thing which, you know, Lucas never asked to be changed. He just, he loved the way that Williams did those from the very beginning. Well, there you go. So I'm not crazy. I have heard uh, some of that stuff. There's a guy that I like to watch on YouTube called Sideways. He does all sorts of stuff specifically about film soundtracks and stuff like that. And he went through and played some of the, some of the temp tracks that you know, like the, the bit from, I want to say it's Rites of Spring by um, Stravinsky. And, you know, it's the da na 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 You know, the part where 3PO and R2-D2 are wandering in the desert. You have that bit. And, yeah, you can hear it exactly. And, and I guess there's a Western that has uh, a really similar sound to it uh, with its song that it does and so on and so forth so and that's a really common thing apparently it's only gotten worse <laughs> as time has gone by and you know sideways does a whole video about that where he's talking about freaking Hans Zimmer and how he's kind of just ruined everything with uh, the whole temp track thing and, and all the stuff that he does so I'd recommend checking that out if you like film soundtrack music like I do we can put a link in the show but notes Oh, yeah, okay. So that's a good idea. I would have never thought of that. <laughs> hey, Marshall, uh, in case people haven't heard the uh, the podcast, go ahead and spoil the that the best part. That part, we started talking about it, but go ahead and finish it. Lucas is in London. Right. Spielberg is in California. And John Williams starts... So, yeah, like you said earlier, everybody's just blown away and just can't believe how beautiful and good this music is and... And uh, George Lucas gets so excited, he calls Steven Spielberg and says, Oh, you got to hear this. I'm so glad you, you told me to use Johnny. And, and he says, Listen to this. And Steven Spielberg sitting there listening to the uh, score over the phone, thousands of miles away. George, I've got Steven on the line. Steve, you were right about Johnny. Listen to this. George holds up the phone so Steven can hear the music. 
I told you, George. I told you. Hold up the phone. And I guess that, you know, that's probably one of the most expensive phone calls from London Studios there. Yeah, that can be a teaser for them. If you listen to the show, you'll find out just how much it cost the studio <laughs> for them to pay for this uh, little bit of excitement that uh, Spielberg got to have by listening to the... I wonder how awful that had to be trying to listen to the score to a movie over a phone <laughs> with an international, not only just over the phone, an international connection. That couldn't have been awesome. Yeah. Well, I thought it was cool how the podcast tried to portray that as well. They went all out so you could hear the sound of the music going through the the airwaves or the phone lines or whatever when Stephen was listening to it on the other end. So they really kind of enhanced that experience from the sound design of the podcast as well. Um, they were giddy about it. They were so excited about the music they were hearing. And, you know, those moments probably, you know, compensate for all of those terrible things that George Lucas had gone through. And, you know, Steven Spielberg had similar things going on with Jaws. That That's another thing I took away from this was I didn't, I knew that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were friends and the collaborators, but I didn't realize how close they were even early on in their careers that, you know, they supported each other. They helped each other with scripts, even when they were uh, going through hard times with their own movie. <laughs> then I was blown away. I didn't realize that George Lucas just despaired for the movie to come out and thought it was going to be such a terrible thing. He didn't even want to be around and, and invited Steven to go to Hawaii for the premiere of, of Star Wars coming out. So they were just sitting on the beach in Hawaii when they, the news came in of how big of a success it was. And they're just kind of sitting on the beach talking about Indiana Jones. <laughs> I thought so many things like that to realize how, how close they were and really how foundational those two movies, Jaws and Star Wars, were for the, the whole relationship with John Williams as well. All three of them kind of supported each other at this time and if there was a sequel to this or another season where they continued on, that three-way friendship has carried on throughout the years as well. Uh, Big and I talked about if this were a movie, if you could make a movie of it, would anybody care? How would you make a movie like this about, uh, you know, just uh, somebody buying the rights to Blockbuster and making a movie of it, whether it would work as well? whether you could tell it in shorter time or you'd have to have it be a miniseries and whether now is the time to make it or waiting until Lucas and Spielberg are gone to make it. What do you think, hmm. Marshall? And then Big, you can jump in there. I don't know. I, I think it would have to be a, a series, a TV, you know, Netflix or some other, probably not Disney, but maybe. But it, it would have to be a serialized kind of thing where you'd, You'd watch it and come back for the next episode or binge it or whatever. And if you try to compress it, I don't know, this is pretty small. So maybe if you made a feature out of it, you could pull it off. But I, I think it would be kind of a neat thing. However, I also kind of like the way it exists now, you know, using just the audio for it. But whether to, to do it now or after Lucas and Spielberg are gone... 
I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what their legacy will be. Right, exactly. I mean, the hard part about it is getting, you know, now it's no longer just this is Spielberg, this is Lucas, because you're just hearing their voice and you can put their face to it in your mind without having to really come up with anything. But if you wait until they're gone, you may have waited too long. You know what I mean? Like they're part of the foundational myth of our generation and... The millennials, I don't know, they, they want a story about how Harry Potter was written or Percy Jackson. I don't <laughs> know what they care about, those friggin' millennials. <laughs> the kids younger than them, you know, they, they seem to care even less. Like, I can't get my kids to care that much about Star Wars. So it seems to me like if you really want the bang for your buck, you got to do it now. Uh, you can't wait until they've come and gone because there's not going to be the interest, you know, that there would be now. I think it would probably make a lot of money if you, you know, we just saw the Queen biopic. Oh, right. Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. Just saw that just the other day. And, you know, that one did really well. That one's kind of weird. The Queen seems to have had a lot of a resurgence recently. Their music seems to be in like every commercial and... My 15-year-old daughter loves Queen for some reason. So maybe there's just that kind of thing can happen. There's there's a resurgence, and now it'll be time. You know, all of a sudden, everybody wants to see those. Maybe finally Disney will get the rights to everything back, and they'll be able to release those original DVD versions of it or something like that, and we can see Star Wars as it was meant to be seen. And then it'll have a resurgence. I don't know. You would think that the resurgence would be on right now because they've got new movies coming out, but Marvel still seems to dominate everything. But it would make a really great, really interesting movie, I think, or HBO series, a mini-series. I'm trying to find a... It was a documentary I watched on Netflix a few months ago about Orson Welles' lost movie. I want to say Inherit the Wind, but I know that's wrong. But I, I was kind of thinking in terms of that, I mean, how interested are are we in learning about the making of uh, Citizen Kane or, you know, something like that? I am because I like movies and stuff like that. But yeah, for it to be really successful, I think, you know, you, to get the big audience, you know, you need to get it now while the big audience still exists. Because, yeah, I mean, movies about making, you know, Ed Wood is always going to be successful among film buff types. But, uh, you know, 50 years down the line or 30 years down the line or whatever, it's not going to be as big of a deal. It's not going to make as much of a splash if your generation is dropping away now and it's, it's only millennials and Gen Z, whatever they're called, if they have a name yet. I've heard them called iGen. <laughs> That's horrible. My daughter hates that name, though. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> she wants anything else but that. Well, listen, just a couple of years ago, they made a film about the making of Psycho called Hitchcock with Anthony Hopkins and Helen Mirren. And it, I feel like that was fairly successful. I wasn't, none of us had been born when Psycho came out. Of course, we're all movie guys, and so we care about that sort of thing. But... Yeah, if they wanted to make a movie about the making of Jaws, a movie about the making of Star Wars, 
that's sort of that same way. It's just a movie about the making of that's not outside the realm of possibility. You could also do it as a series, though. There, there was a, I want to say it's on FX miniseries just a couple of years ago about the making of uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane. It was called Feud, and it was about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Oh, right. Working together on this movie and how much they hated each other and how the studio just grabbed that and was just like, oh, yeah. Put them in scenes together. These two can't even stand to be in the same room together. It's just like, oh. And, and, and they would do things to make them angry at each other intentionally because the gossip colonists were eating it up and, and it, it became, everybody wanted to see this movie. And I don't know how many episodes that is, six or eight or ten or whatever. But if a, a movie that's fairly obscure, like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, could get six to ten hours told about it, I feel like a Jaws or a Star Wars could have, you know, just as much. And and somebody somewhere has to be watching those. I watched Hitchcock. I, I, I imagine you guys didn't. I've, um, I've seen that one. There's another one, the Hitchcock one, where it's about the making of the birds, and I haven't seen that one yet, but I did see Hitchcock. I did not see it. Uh, and Big, you mentioned making of... Harry Potter, I'd watch the hell out of a movie about Rowling, about Rowling being a, a single mother with nothing and going to become the first billionaire author. But do you do it now when she is still pretty young or do you wait until she's not around to refute and say, I, oh, I never did that? I, well, Big and I saw uh, Saving Mr. Banks together. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. About the making of Mary Poppins. And that was a transformative film, for me at least, as far as Tom Hanks playing Walt Disney and Emma Thompson playing, what was her name, Travers? P.L. Travers? And those two sort of getting along. If anything, it made me appreciate Mary Poppins in a way that I never had before because I saw the people that it came from, and I, it made me want to see more Disney making ofs. It made me want to make a movie myself about the making of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, because that was Walt Disney's Star Wars. That was him putting everything on the line and all the money that they had gotten for this, the animated shorts over the years and risking the reputation of the studio on a feature-length animated film. It's like, the, nobody will go to that. You know how much money it would cost to make When you're making it in color? Are you crazy? That kind of thing was just like in the Star Wars scenes. Nobody believed that that would be successful. That was going to be a career ender for this guy that made all of the Steamboat Willie shorts and, you know, the Donald Duck cartoons that kids loved, but who gave a crap about cartoons? I, I, like I said, I want to make that movie because I want that story to be told in the same way that Mary Poppins' story had been told in that movie. Just because it is one of those stories where the guy is tenacious and he, he believes he has a dream and eventually he is proven right. And the rest of the world goes, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I always knew that that was going to be a big hit. Oh, yeah, of course. 
Of course, adults were going to go see a cartoon in the theaters. Huh. I'm sorry, I derailed us. But you know what I'm talking about, Big? With just the drama behind these films that have just been institutions forever. That we just take them for granted that the movies made themselves. <laughs> right. And that's kind of the way I felt about this whole podcast. Yeah, it's, it's always been something that I just kind of, I took it for granted that it's, it just was a thing. Yeah, we had this great visionary, put it together, and then he was corrupted by life and he went on to create uh, the prequels. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this thing was kind of like taking you back to that. It really, it really gave you that look into the past that, you know, it even feels, sometimes if you really think about it, it's, I guess it's that way with everybody, with a lot of things, you know, just, we're always changing. Think of yourself, what you're like now, as opposed to what you were like 10 years ago and what you were like 20 years ago. And it's interesting to get any look into the past like that, really, especially of something that you value so much, like Star Wars. It's the story of a boy, a girl, and a galaxy. I I really enjoyed listening to this show. It was fun. I, I, I wish that they would continue it on and go on and do more. If we're lucky, they will. I don't know. But, you know, if you haven't listened to it and we haven't spoiled everything for you already, I would suggest that you get your... I mean, it's free. <laughs> Follow the link that Marshall has put in the post and go and listen to it. Uh, I just listened to it in an afternoon while I was at work. One of the good things about uh, a lot of my job is that my eyes and hands and stuff like that are busy, but my ears usually aren't. So, you know, I can just sit and listen to podcasts or whatever. And that's what I did. I just put it on and, and listened to it and enjoyed it. And I would suggest you all get your, uh, get your hands on it. Yeah, you mentioned spoiling things. You know, that's, I wanted to talk about this, but I, I don't want to spoil too much. And I don't think, I think we've done... Good job. I mean, we've talked about some of the specific scenes that we were impressed with, and so that might not be a surprise to somebody that's listened to this before they listen to Blockbuster. But at the same time, hearing us describe it doesn't give it justice to actually listening to it and, and being in those scenes with those people and, and feeling what they're feeling. And it, this was inspiring too, because you know, creating things is hard, seeing your vision through to the end and getting through all the obstacles and having enough passion and enough willpower to just fight through it and get what you want on the screen or on the page or whatever. I mean, it, it's hard work, but look at the, the benefits that these guys have seen and, and the, the highs have hopefully overcome the low lows that it took them to get them there. So to me, that was inspiring that if I believe in something, I can create something too. And, uh, you know, hopefully other people can feel that as they listen to it. Yeah, that's a good recommendation, man. It's weird that we are doing a podcast about another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it feels, I don't know, like we're advertising our competitors. But But this was such a unique thing. All three of us have done full cast productions and so we all know how much work goes into something like that but this was this took that 
to another level. It was the most ambitious podcast I'd ever heard. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm happy to talk about it. Plus, it gave us something to talk about for an hour and a half about Star Wars that we hadn't talked about before. And that any excuse to talk about Star Wars, I will leap upon. Yeah, and I, you know, I encourage people to, you know, their their website and and you know, as you listen to the podcast, you know, it says, hey, if you want to be a subscriber and or if you want to donate, you know, you can go here and do that. So I'd, I'd encourage people to consider doing that as well. And I'll even forego suggesting they <laughs> support this podcast to uh, have it go to Blockbuster podcast. So, but if you guys listen to this and you want to comment on it, you can. Uh, Contact us here at journeyintopodcast at gmail.com. Uh, reach out. You can reach out on Facebook or Twitter. Just look for Journey Into Podcast or at Journey Into and uh, comment on on the things that we've talked about. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. Other than that, thank, thanks big for coming on. and No problem. I appreciate your input. And Rish, as always, it's great to talk to you about Star Wars. Yeah, and we will get together soon, and I'm going to do another one of those uh, sharing original content with the listeners episodes that, uh, you know, like Blockbuster is something that only we can do that is unique to us. Oh, yeah, Chewie. That was something else. What is the Wookiee saying? He was just remembering when we blasted this TIE fighter at the Death Star, and instead of exploding, it spun like a broken top out into the depths of space. <laughs> TIE fighter. Do not encourage him, Bounty Hunter. <laughs> really? Lord Vader? You don't say. There you go. We're content creators, too. Yeehaw. All right, well, thanks for listening, everybody, and may the Force be with you. Always. Force yourself. <laughs> you can see here the delusions of grandeur podcast orbiting the forest moon of Journey Into. Although the Creative Commons license of this podcast is not yet operational, it does have a strong defense mechanism. It is protected by a non-commercial, no-derivative, share-alike energy shield, which prevents it from being altered, repurposed, or sold. Until this shield is down, our cruisers can share the fire with whomever they like, while the fighters attempt to knock out the main reactor. May the force be with us. And Big, what did you tell me when I called you and I was just gushing about this? Do you remember? Uh, I told you to F off? Well, no, that, that was the day <laughs> oh, before and different. the day after on this oh. particular. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, you got, I don't know. I, you have to be slightly more specific. I don't remember. <laughs>